Last time uh, the three of us were together, I was pacing up and down a street in Guangzhou um, where we were trying to process uh, some sort of visa document through the embassy before the whole world shut down. So about (laughs) five years ago. And uh, I just remember hearing, like, walking out, like, walking out of this hotel room. Like, you know how, like, you can go to hotels and never remember anything. And for some reason, this one down from the embassy, I will ever remember as Andy's starting anvil. You know, and I can like search it, like Andy's starting anvil, and I could like pop in there, and they'd have a room ready for me. Oh. That was yeah. That was six six years ago, maybe seven six years ago. Six years, seven years ago. We that would have been fe- February in two thousand fourteen was when it was like we're doing this and no turning back. So that was seven years ago, man. That's that's wild. Uh, two thousand fourteen was actually the year that we went to live in China for the first time. So the time we talked must have been a different time. I was already well in China. We were talking about, maybe we were catching up and you were telling me about how you had made the leap. No, it's, it was when Andy was just moving. You were just moving down there. Oh, so that was even, I mean, that, that would have been, it's almost going on 10 years now <laughs> down here. Which I is, think, I which think is, the last yeah. time we talked, uh, <laughs> because we started. You, wait, <laughs> no, you, Ron, you don't remember, but like I opened the van door and Andy jumped out and put a corn cob in his mouth and said, We're fishing. And and we had a show that night, but he had to catch a fish in the Wapakoneta River. I think that's the last time we talked. <laughs> Stop. No, the, <laughs> that la- must the last have been- time. I- the last time I saw Carl, we were in the Atlanta airport, and I think I met you at two in the morning, down in in the you lobby. Did. But you but did. you 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 were, your entire life was packed up into some suitcases that was that you were like actively trying to to guard and protect your family from everyone who hangs out there at at two in the morning. And, and, and if <laughs> anybody's been to the Atlanta Georgia airport, it, you know. That uh, that is more frequented than I knew growing up in the Salvation Army with my parents opening up, you know, homes left and right. Little did we know on our way from China somewhere. Um, But we learned and (laughs) you showed up on the scene. The other thing that we learned in that airport, or, or at least my kids learned, was that there's actually ice in um, your drink. They learned that. And and they were really impressed. They're like, and and Zoe was disappointed. He was like, well, I don't want, I don't want ice in this. Like he was very Chinified. So <laughs> you know, like Atlanta was bringing ice in the pop soda, and he was like, not used to that. He's like, this isn't lukewarm. So that's not a thing in China. Uh, ice ice? In, in your beverage? No, no, no. We'll get to that later. That's topic three tonight, but we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Well, this is going to be a compelling conversation. <laughs> and and actually, I don't really like make segues. I'm going to weave it in. I'm excited to see how you do that. It's going to be masterful. <laughs> We're going to start with Anvil and then go to No Ice in China. All right, go. 
<laughs> well, uh, welcome everybody to another Origins podcast. I am your host, Carl, aka Gluscabi. And I'm Ron Green, aka Lucian Nather. And, and I've is, got, I've got, I, I, I've got, I've got a guest for you all. <laughs> Stemming back from the days of Hope Fest, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Everybody's like, ah, all the listeners are like, ah, a uh, good friend and fellow colleague, uh, Andrew Culp is joining us from, I would say Atlanta, Georgia, but that would not be right. Where, where are you joining us from, Andrew? Yeah, we're, we're about. 40 minutes north of downtown so we're in a, a area called alpharetta and so we're we're a little trip up route 400 from from atlanta so not atlanta proper but uh we we are the epitome of the suburban sprawl so if you look up that in the dictionary you'll you'll see alpharetta as kind of this northern expansion from from downtown atlanta very cool um andrew and i uh, go way back um, to our time having met in Messiah College um, as musicians at that time. Um, but I always remember uh, Andy and Steve being the music, uh, the, the musicians slash teachers in the band. So he had a head start on education back then. And uh, along the way, 20 years of relationship and friendship, um, we've became we've become colleagues um, so we'll be catching up on everything that Andrew uh, has been up to, a very exciting career um, that he can share with us, uh, starting in a classroom, moving into administration. I believe you've, you've held uh, principal roles as well right before your recent gig. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the climbing the old uh, educational corporate ladder here, uh, all the way from the sprawl, Andrew Culp, um, and and we'll 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 dab a little bit in all of that. But um, the big excitement uh, is about you know we are trying to figure out the numbers. But last seven years of you know a a family um, community based venture um, that uh, is called the Anvil Academy, and Andy will be telling us all about that, and we'll be catching up on the good the bad and the ugly. So uh, warm welcome to you. Thanks so much for being on the podcast with us tonight. We're looking forward uh, yeah, to the conversation with you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invite. Um, Carl, Carl and I have uh, a, uh, a frequent conversation through Facebook that is fast and furious. And then, and then at times I, I, trail off for a while and then we kind of come back at it and so it's fantastic to be able to to be back in conversation so i'm i'm in alpharetta where are you guys you're in you're in maine carl yeah i am in belgrade maine the 04917 that i came to growing up um and now about two years now i've been living with my family so a lot to lot to catch up on that front too Mr. Ron, um, you want to speak yep. for yourself about I'm, where you're at? Yep, I am in uh, Littleton, Colorado. When I was growing up, they called it Little Fun. And uh, <laughs> but you had to make your own fun because uh, we're right in the epitome of urban suburban sprawl. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, tucked up right against the mountain. So the uh, illustrious and uh, iconic Red Rocks is mm. about 15 minutes from my house. So it's uh, approachable by bike. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, maybe um, a place to kick off uh, tonight's conversation and, and, and share with everyone is maybe where you're currently at, um, the Anvil Academy. Um, you know, when I, when I think about tonight and the catching up to do, um, it's full of excitement of what I have seen over two decades of a guy that I really respect um, make you know, series of decisions um, that lead towards and away and then towards and all of these things of like passion. Um, and, and, and some years those decisions fit really well. And then sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, like we'll get into all of that uh, along the way, but um, just as a framing things for, for others that are not familiar with the Anvil Academy, like what is the Anvil Academy? How long have you guys been at it? Um, you know, how things are going and we'll, we'll kick it off from there. Yeah, well, so Anvil Academy, we are in year seven as an organization, uh, year six in full operations. And so what, what we are is, is we are a learning community specifically for middle school boys. Uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade are the the students that come through, and and what we've tried to to curate is a three year adventure learning experience that that helps to walk with families as they navigate these wild years between sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And so uh, there's all sorts of different components for what that looks like, um, but essentially there's there's kind of four big areas. Uh, in the Anvil experience, one is is this this idea of hands dirty. Is that when boys are here, that the learning isn't uh, just ethereal; that that it is something that is application in a very tactile way. So they're learning to build, learning to create, learning to dig, and actually get their hands dirty. So it takes this idea of information and moves to application in real world ways. Um, now, second piece is are you guys are you guys a charter school or are you an after school program or how how exactly does that fit in so uh one of the beautiful things about georgia is is that our department of education uh has a really kind of robust uh, idea of what education can look like and so this was one of the things that was different when we moved down here um all the different iterations of what school can be from homeschool to hybrid school, to charter, to private, to public. Um, uh -huh. There were more options here than we'd seen anywhere. And so um, what we did is, is we launched uh, what might be called a hybrid school. Um, technically we're called an, a non-traditional educational center, which means uh, we can provide kind of up to 60% of the core content students have. Uh, primarily we're focused on teaching history uh, and a little of science through these experiences along with kind of biblical worldview. Um, but we account for that part of, of the students learning and then either they're in a homeschool environment or another hybrid environment for uh, really their math and language arts or their numeracy and literacy. So um, we're partnering with families and they're kind of a la carte piecing together the rest. 
Super cool. Um, are there other <clears throat> models for what you're doing in your area? I mean, I, I'd like to know how you, how you moved to that model. Um, it makes sense in so many ways, but you're not like a full fledged school, but you're doing these really specific things and, and your target audience is dialed into some, to some point, right? You're not really going after the general public. You're looking for qualified people that are like, no, this is kind of what we want for our kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, how far back in the story do you want me to go? Cause it, it kind of all stems from the origin of, of Anvil as to kind of how we got into that. The, the short story is, as Carl mentioned, I um, went to college for elementary education, had a, just a passion for uh, engaging in, in, in kind of the formation process of uh, kids. At some point it was doing it through music in the band um, and then started moving more into the professional education side. And I loved teaching. I, abs I absolutely loved it. Um, taught third grade, fourth grade in, in a really rural part of Virginia. Um, and were some of the best years in the classroom. Um, after getting married, moved up to New Jersey and was kind of in the, the other end of, of the spectrum in a really um, affluent and resource district. And, and that had a lot of uh, great opportunities as well. But um, one of the things that we just ran into as, as we started having kids and a bigger family, the economics of education really began to to pressure. And after, after eight years, it was clear that if, if I was going to stay both in North Jersey and in education, um, there was really this pressure either to move into administration or to kind of eject and go into corporate America in order mm -hmm. to make the numbers work as a family. <clears throat> Interesting. And so, um, I, I mean, I, I felt, I felt gifted and led into educational leadership. It wasn't just a money grab. <laughs> so right. let me say that, but <laughs> But there, there was a really um, interesting, you know, calculus that that my wife Katie and I did as we thought through um, what do we value professionally and, and what do we desire, and and we were both pretty pretty firm that to stay in education was our desire, and and so went back to school and and got a master's degree in educational leadership, and I actually moved into the principalship and had several great years uh, as a principal of a middle school. Um, and it was fantastic. I had, we had a fantastic faculty, great student body, great school culture. But were, were, did you the, become principal in the school that you were already working in as a teacher? No, I moved uh, to a district the next town over. And actually, uh -huh. at that point, I moved. My first uh, admin role was was as dean of students or as kind of vice principal in in a private school, in a private parochial Christian school there in, in North Jersey, um, a school called Eastern Christian, which was just a fantastic school. Um, and, and I loved working there. I moved from Dean of Students into the principalship. And what, what was interesting actually is I had gone to that school as a student growing up for some of my school years. And uh, there were several, uh, several wow. teachers just still warms on the faculty. my heart. No you way. Know? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like it was it's like walking out in October and you count on the leaves, you know? They're they've fallen. Here we go. Dean of the school in which he grew up and beautiful. 
We're going to end on was, that, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you, but it was it was really interesting how, you know, those relationships changed because some of the teachers that I had a student as a student were st- still there oh, wow. as we became became colleagues. And oh, uh, wow. they were super gracious with me. And, and very kind. And, you know, I'm sure at times they kind of rolled their eyes <laughs> uh, during faculty <laughs> meetings. Um, but they were, they were fantastic. Oh, my um, goodness. But the, come on, the you got to share. No, no, no. Hold on. This is a little too safe. Come on, man. Like, there's got to be something, right? Like, you're far gone. You're not in Jersey anymore. They've probably all retired. But like, you're describing something just fantabulous, right? Um, you know, and, and granted, I was, I was going to pick up the same thing if you had gone from, you know, being an English teacher to going into admin. I was just recently having a, a similar conversation with uh, the local middle school principal here in Belgrade. Uh, very cool dynamics. You know, it's, it's, it's worth acknowledging these, these interesting dynamics that transcend. But, but, you know, you having been in the classroom, become dean and then principal, there's got to be something you can tell oh, us it, about. It actually sounds like a, like the it sounds like a dream come true in the sense of like, <laughs> yeah, right. like when I, I remember when I was in sixth grade and they, for and who, whose dream no, come no, true? No, 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 I'm no, thinking no, of the, I'm thinking no. of the old lady. That's like, Oh no, for the, for, for, for Andy. Right. Oh, because, okay. You know, like in sixth grade, they asked this question of, of all the sixth graders as they were, as they were graduating, which is one of the dumbest things in the world. I like, um, or they call that a continuation. It's like, okay, well, well every year is a continuation. <laughs> like, it's stupid. So they're so they asked everyone what they wanted to be, like where they saw themselves in <laughs> 30 years or something uh-huh. like that, or when they were, you know, you know, in, in 20 years or whatever. And and there's some kid probably that's that th- that put. I'm going to be the principal of Normandy Elementary School. <laughs> you know, and it's right within the window. I'm just like, no, that kid would be my boss then. Right. Like, but then that actually happened. And so this is like a case study yeah. in like, what would happen if that actually came true? Plus, you know, that's not a bad question of just to ask all like kids at your school, like, what would you do if you were the principal of the, <laughs> of the school? Because like <laughs> the things that you'd get back would be like awesome, right? Yeah, yeah, seriously. Well, well you know, if, if you had asked me in middle school, I, I probably would have said either. <laughs> I mean, of course, every kid wants to be the baseball player, right? I want, I want to play. That's for what I the, put. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so there's actually a really interesting part of this is, is my dad... Uh, who I have such respect for, was, was very successful as a businessman, um, kind of had the same trajectory as, as he was a teacher. So he was a teacher and, and actually had to make the decision to leave education and go into business. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember talking with him once. We were taking this drive back th- from Texas. So we had like 48 hours in the car together. And if you ever want to get just get to know your dad on a different level, you know, 48 hours in a car ride, you know, from Texas to New Jersey, 
we had better <laughs> conversation in that time than we've ever had. But one of the yeah. things he shared is, 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 you know, he's, he'd achieved these different accolades in, in business, but he kind of, in this moment of, of, you know, candor said, you know, I, I love what I did for a living and I love the work that I did, but in some ways I, I, I wish I could have cut it as a teacher. I, I wish I could have stayed in, in that the teachers are the ones who are really doing the work of this world. Um, and, and I just remember that in some ways, like, do I follow the trajectory of my dad or do, do I, do I kind of stay in this realm and find a way to make it work? And so from a young age, I I thought education and I thought, you know, being a teacher was something that, um, I had a passion for, and, and I saw a pathway for, um, (laughs) <laughs> but I see, I wouldn't have been the kid that the teachers would have thought. And if you would have told those teachers in middle school that this kid was going to be the principal one day, I, <laughs> I think, I, yeah. I think that yeah. that's where the, the real rebellion would have happened. So, wow. well, right. Um, like, because it, you never expect that it's going to, it's, it's always the one that you don't expect. Right. And, right. uh, you right. know, I remember when I graduated from high school, my, my <clears throat> choir teacher told my parents, like, he should be a teacher. They're like, really? They're like, why? And he's like, because he knows everything not to do. <laughs> he's he's learned, yeah. He's, he's learned how he's not, like, to, not to he's do. like he'd 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 spot all of the troublemakers really, really fast. You know, and it's like, which is like such a terrible thing. To, it's like, well, that's a backhanded remark. If I <laughs> so how well, you know how old so, how old was your was your dad or what was happening in his life? Just just briefly, because actually I want to frame this. Uh the, there's a particularity here of like three male uh you know educators right that that um you know have had to deal with exactly what you're talking about in terms of Mm -hmm. that should i stay or should i go and it's important to to acknowledge that reality um, yeah. and, and, and that it's nothing, you know, by bringing your dad into this, it's nothing, um, necessarily that just popped up. It's been around. Um, and you know, I, I, I was telling Ron a couple of podcasts ago that I picked up this, uh, book. Can't actually say that I'm entirely enjoying it, but, but a lot of the things that it's speaking of is putting into numbers, you know, that's, that's the thing I like about it puts into numbers, the lack of male presence in education and the effect that that has on boys. Um, Mm. And uh, on everyone, right? Like, you know, but, but really like, and, and then eventually we'll get to it with you in terms of the work of the Anvil Academy, right? And how you guys are approaching it and why and the response you're getting. But but really, if we're going back and you're talking about your dad having to make a decision of pulling out. So we're talking about a somebody with a passion for education that even after years of accolades and success still looks back and says, man, I wish I could have done that. It's been good, but I wish I could have done that. There's a reality, um, not that there's not an interest, but but it's really hard to maintain um, and, uh, and you've done it. Um, uh, but pr- I, I like that you've gone back. So what was going on in your dad's life? Um, how did it present itself 
at what period in his life, you know, you started the whole conversation about, you know, what really started to push towards Anvil kind of 10 years before Anvil was that you were an educator that not only was married, but had many kids. The dynamic shifted yeah. from just being in the classroom to like, how can we make this happen? You know, and, and, and same for your dad. So let's start back there. So it was, it was a, about the same time uh, in stage of life, as I understand it, I, I'm sure I'll get the story wrong if he ever listens to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it was so, so I'm one of four, I'm, I'm the second of four. And, and my sense, it was, it was probably when my, my younger sister was born. So you kind of go from two kids to three kids. Um, he was teaching, mm-hmm. I think high school biology, uh, and, and I think it was, it was just beginning to, you know, the, the numbers didn't work anymore. It was becoming less and less feasible. My mom had been a teacher before we had kids. She was back when schools had, had home ec programs. She was a teacher. Um, and so it was embedded into the culture, the value system of our family. But, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting, he initially took a, a sales job at, you know, selling cars and was doing okay with that. But he saw an ad for educational publishing. And he was like, this is a way that I can be back around schools mm-hmm. and be in that environment. And so he, he left and he went into educational publishing and become a sales rep for, I guess, what at the time was Prentice Hall, you know, Prentice Hall books, Prentice Hall publishing wow. became Pearson. Um, and that's where he spent the majority of his career. And so he was, he was in the, the educational ecosystem and he was still engaging with teachers. He was engaging with with faculty. Right. He was in and out wow. of schools, and so I think it was his way of of bridging the the value set of I just I don't want to go sell widgets somewhere. I want to do something of value, but also needing a different financial trajectory. Now, okay, Andy, does your did I understand that your wife? Uh, I think you said Katie. Is she a teacher also? She she was a, a full time teacher in public school until we started having kids, and then okay. now okay. she's she she actually I mean she homeschools our kids to uh-huh. to the degree that they're at home, and she teaches at one of these hybrid schools. So she teaches um, first and second and third and fourth grade science at okay. one of these hybrid schools. Uh, so it yeah it, I gotcha. think it's one of those things that. When you when you're raised in that family culture, there's just this intrinsic value to the to the work that's being done. And really, when you get into the, the details of being an educator, it, it really doesn't make sense in terms of the amount of work you put into your planning, into your grading, into all of your your lesson work. <laughs> but but it's something that you just you get in, you get in you. And and I haven't found any other place that you can feel like you have in the, that same influence and impact um so that's what's kept me around and us around wow so you um all right okay so when you move into the administrative role um and go through being you know the the supervisor of people that you had grown up with um what what was your loss what was because you 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 said that that you would have loved to stay in teaching, but you kind of it made financial 
sense to move in that direction, even though there was an interest in leadership, all of that. But but there's a loss. You step out of the classroom um, and, there, and there's gains, right? Unexpected. You know, talk a little bit about that transition for you. I think I can honestly say that I was a really bad dean of students. Um, one, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. And I, I don't think I was skillful at it in any way. And so the way mm. our school was structured is that we had a principal and then you had the dean of students who really served as a vice principal. Um, but we we weren't resourced with with a counselor, you know, or or any sort of, you know, resource there. And so you had students who were struggling, who were uh, just exper experiencing trouble, but also in trouble. And you were kind of this role of having to, I felt I needed to, to be the, the enforcer of a really ironclad code of ethics. Um, and the school had that, the school had, had a really ironclad, this is what it looks like to, to kind of walk in the way. And, and I was the enforcer. And so the system that I inherited in some ways, we had merits and demerits, and it was this, this kind of strange database of if you if you do good you get merits if you do bad you get demerits and i just i did i you, hated did I hated you it. think you were gonna because you grew up in that system and you knew you were getting into it like like you thought you'd be able to cope with it or or is it more that you did cope with it but it just wasn't enjoyable or were you really surprised by oh my gosh like <laughs> we need to get down to georgia <laughs> no um <laughs> i mean i think that the school had changed since I had been there. So like, this is now 20 years later. So it, it had evolved and changed, I think for, for the better, honestly. Um, but I think that just wasn't, that just wasn't my, my passion or interest. I didn't see that as a way of engaging and influencing students. And I mm -hmm. think honestly, it was my first leadership job. I think, um, you know, in some ways you're just doing what you think you need to do. Yeah, I, I didn't really feel like I could kind of put my fingerprints on it or even feel like I could have autonomy in the position. I kind of felt like I was I was I was posing, honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how long how long were you there? So I was I was in that role for two years mm -hmm. and I think everybody was glad to see me leave. <laughs> but but the so it, in, in everybody's um, always glad to see the dean <laughs> leave <laughs> let, let, let me ask you a quick question if you saw a person you were like they're really great in that position what what would you describe them as like what what are the attributes of a person that that is really meant for that job beside you know beyond just like well they seem to like it um like what what would functionally like what would it look like for for a person to be successful at that yeah, well, I mean, I think there was there was just a certain ad administrative skill that I was immature in, just in terms of managing the data and managing the system and all of the um, the communication around that. I, I mean, I think I was I was young and just not qualified and needed to grow into that. But then the other piece was you straddle this role of of discipline for the sake of formation and growing maturity, and I don't think I had the appropriate posture and honest, honestly, the personal maturity to be able to walk that line of how, how do you enforce the law or the, the code of ethics? And at the same time, 
do it in a way that uh, just communicates care and empathy and, and understanding, you know, essentially I became the bad guy. I was like the heavy of the school. And at the same time, this is what was hard. I think I was 20, 28, maybe mm-hmm. 27, 28. And, and so then I'm meeting with parents and you're having these conferences with parents. My own kids <laughs> at this point are, are like five and three and two and one. And I'm in this position where I have, I'm telling parents like, this is how you should raise your kid. You know, and they're looking at me like, come on, what are you talking about? You have five-year-olds. And I'm, I'm thinking the, like, we're both thinking like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, So it just, (laughs) like, I honestly, I think someone Uh, in that position, the the woman who took the position after me was so skilled. And so uh, just, she, she managed that really well. She, she had um, grown children you know who were in college at the time um she had uh, a really um beautiful life story but a hard life story and she had so much wisdom to do mm-hmm. this this counseling and discipline work from that i didn't have wow. so I, honestly when i moved into uh-huh. the principal role because that came open two years later the current principal became the director of curriculum for the district so i moved into the principalship i mean i applied for it moved into it and I think was in the that same at way the that same was, school? Yeah, yeah, it was at the. That was and you the felt more school. comfortable at as a principal than as a dean. Yeah, hundred oh. oh. percent. Yeah, I, I loved, I loved the principalship there, because that was so much more about developing a team of teachers and and casting vision for where, kind of, we were going uh, right. from a, a community side, and it was it was so much more cultivating community and having, you know, relationships, yes, with the students, but more with developing this team. And I, I just felt that was a language I was a, a lot more fluent in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so, that's actually where. So, so you, you fell in love with that. And how long were you there before you let go of that, which you had come to love and why, you know, all of that. So that was three, three years I was in the principalship and, and they were three really sweet years. And how old Um, were your kids at the time? At the time, um, man, my oldest was probably, they were probably six, four, two, and just about to be born. Uh Um, So, so yeah, we, we were kind of on the every two years. Uh, plan and and yeah, the Lord was good. We were able to to time it around. Uh, Katie would give birth right before school <laughs> let out for the summer, and even, <laughs> even though it was at that point, you're in kind of a 12 month role as as an administrator. Well, that's but how that's they, how I expect a principal, former dean, uh, former fourth grade <laughs> teacher to procreate. So, good job. Yeah, it was it was very patterned, and it was. <laughs> Talking about talking about origins and cycles, everybody, and regeneration. (laughs) Didn't think we'd go there, did we? Anyway, so scratching the surface. I mean, I didn't I didn't ask you to go there, but but you decided to spell out uh, your continuum and uh, (laughs) well calendric birthing. Oh, well, well, to answer your actual question, 
um, this is where the the seed of anvil I think was for, first birthed was so now I'm in the principalship right and we have, I have a really skillful dean of students and she this woman Mary did a great job but what happened is I started now the 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 really challenging cases I end up kind of dealing with on the principalship level which I felt better equipped to do but the pattern I begin to see is is just that these boys who uh, are bright and creative and uh, bored to death in class are, are just finding ways to um, get their curiosity out or find adventure. And, and what I begin to see is this pattern of, of boys who aren't, aren't hard hearted, you know, they're not malicious, um, but they're ending up in my office because they don't see themselves as students or learners. They, they don't see anything for them in the classroom. And uh, I, I think I start to see them making decisions that as I track these boys then into high school, they're making decisions that impact their trajectory in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade that start to come to fruition in 10th, 11th, 12th grade, where yeah. like those little degrees of choices, all of a sudden the kid who was bright and curious and adventurous says like, no, school's not for me and yeah. leaves the path. And Ooh. I was like, I just began to feel this conviction that like we were failing our boys in a school that was an amazing school, like educationally and from a learning program and, and a, you know, preparatory way, it was a fantastic school, but I just thought we're missing a whole cohort of these boys um, because we've designed something that is uh, kind of mm. antithetical to their developmental stage and, and their nature. Mm. So mm. that the question that, that began rattling around that I couldn't ever get rid of is like, what if we actually created a, a, a school that was designed for mm -hmm. where these boys are and, and met those needs and actually excited and engaged them? Um, what would that look like? And, mm. and that's what began kind of churning in and made me think, I, I think there's something else out there than this. And and earlier when you were when you were talking about the anvil and what Georgia presents um, uniquely uh, or 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 with more ease than other places, um, so the 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 boys are going there. That's that's where all of their curricular credit comes from. Is that correct? Uh, not all of it. Their math and science comes from somewhere else, but but everything else comes from us. Hmm. So that the the thing, you know, we end up making the move to Georgia. One because we we recognized that there was a lot more educational autonomy, and just professionally, I knew if we were going to start something else, it wasn't going to look like uh, an eight to three, five day a week traditional school. Mm -hmm. And my nieces at the time were in a hybrid school. And we were down visiting them over at Thanksgiving. And I was just so curious about how that model worked and, and how does this work from an accreditation side and a, and a class credit side and from a, a tuition side, all these things. I was so curious and, um, and ended up coming, coming down here and joining a hybrid school uh, uh, as on their leadership team. And so uh -huh. Anvil didn't start right away. I, I kind of spent, uh, several years learning the hybrid model at this school called Legacy, 
uh-huh. um, which which was just a really great learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, it created the foundation for, okay, this is this is a structure that would work, you know, uh, a two day a week program. And, and so that's what, An- I mean, Anvil is, we have two co- cohorts, half the boys come on Tuesday, Thursday, the other half come on Wednesday, Friday. Um, what's your, so they're at what's Anvil your entire, two days a week. what's your whole population? Yeah, so we have a hundred students total. Um, our, our board has capped it at, at 50 students in each cohort. Okay. Um, there's a lot of, philosophical reasons behind that that we can get into but um right now we're, we're at this place of fully enrolled and and um you're kind of emerging into maturity and wondering you know what do we do next with what we've learned and what we've created and and the interest that that the community has has continued to show so now when you go when you go down to georgia um, and participate in a hybrid school called Legacy. Um, did you have any idea of what Georgia presented um, legislatively in terms of educational possibilities? Because this is a really interesting thing that we've talked about, uh, touched on. Um, just the the opportunity and limitations um, that exist in different parts, um, where, where a vision can take place in a certain, you know, time and space. Um, but in others, it just can't. And, um, you know, in Jersey, you started to feel this thing and move down to Georgia. When you first moved down there, did you realize it would be possible and you were going to learn, or is that something that came along the way? We, we knew that Georgia presented uh, a much different educational space than, than New Jersey. Um, obviously, there's a very different culture north to south, but just from the Department of Education, um, New Jersey has, uh, their, their Department of Education um, has a, a much more robust oversight, uh, specifically for homeschool students and for non-traditional schools. They exist to some degree up north, but um, Georgia, the, the amount of oversight wasn't nearly as what would feel oppressive. And, and <clears throat> specifically, um, pre-high school, there seems to be a lot of autonomy uh, because you're not having to file uh, you know, high school transcripts that are going to be used for college admissions. There's, there's just a lot of bandwidth to, to operate in. And, and I learned that pretty quickly once we got down here. Um, and so uh, just the number of different non-traditional schools. I, I mean, where we moved to, there, were, there was probably 12 to 15 of, of these really successful and thriving non-traditional hybrid, um, you know, it, it scheduled in a very different way where it wasn't the five-day school. And it took a little while to understand how does this all work and how does rigor fit into this? You know, how, how can, how does, how does a student achieve a really comprehensive education in the midst of all this? And it certainly is, it was not nearly as linear as the pathway up North, but legislatively and from a funding source, the way that Georgia uh, 
offers tax credit redirection towards private schools and towards non-traditional schools, um, it made it accessible financially in a way that, you know, in, in some ways it, it's not a, it's not full school choice. It's not a voucher program, but you can redirect your tax dollars to support private schools who are accredited. And that was one of, that was the game changer where we were like, man, we could actually make this work because the state is going to be helping to, to fund the, wow. you know, the tuition of the school. Can you talk about that a little bit more just to understand um, in terms of the difference between Georgia and maybe, you know, Jersey or wherever that would be, uh, you know, a good portion of, of, of listeners and people interacting, you know, are, are on that brink of uh, like, but how can I make this work? You know, and, and, and it's really interesting to realize sometimes that vision that you have might be possible further down South, you know, or, or so on and so forth. So, so color that a little bit more in terms of how the state funded a possibility to where another state would not have. Well, some of the the financial picture that we knew that we were going to be dealing with has to do with what you were talking about before in terms of men in education. And as we thought about Anvil and this idea of forging men, while there certainly are women and moms and pastors and coaches who are doing you know this work of formation in the lives of the boys, we knew that the faculty that we were going to hire for the school was going to be mature head of household men. And um, we knew that our, our salary structure was gonna look very different than, than a lot of private schools or a lot of Christian schools or, or a lot of these non-traditional schools. Uh, the profile of which is, is typically second income uh-huh. Um, you know, moms who, uh-huh. who are professional teachers, but are, are not carrying the primary, right. um, you know, salary for the family. And so we were like, how do we offer this, but not charge, you know, an right. exorbitant amount for tuition. Right. And so um, one of the things that, that Georgia offers, like I said, is, is this tax credit redirection program where families can redirect up to $5,000 of their Georgia state tax liability. And they can redirect that through the Department of Revenue and it can go to a private school of their choice. Wow. And that creates a scholarship fund at the schools. So schools, I mean, last year, honestly, Anvil, we received $160,000 from the state of Georgia to create a scholarship fund. And it, it made us... Uh, be able to charge the tuition that we needed to pay our teachers, but also offer families significant uh, scholarship to make it so it wasn't, you know, this this financial sure. burden in the midst of their budget. And, you know, I, I think Anvil could happen or this type of school could happen anywhere if you, you know, where, where there would be an accreditation process that you could get through. But it, tuition might look, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars different if it's happening in New Jersey than it is in Georgia. Right. Now, in, in Maine. now, when you talk about that, that state, those state funds, it kind of made me think that, that 
people are putting those taxes into the state and then you guys have access to that state. It's not like people are putting that money directly towards you guys. It's kind of like this collective pool that then everybody draws from. Is, is that right? No. Well, no. So, so Georgia in their financial budget, you know, set aside what at one point was $50 million and then it grew to a hundred million dollars. And now it's I think $150 million that they say we will direct this much of our state revenue to private schools. Mm. So families have to go in before the end of the calendar year and they have to make a pledge to redirect their, their dollars. And it goes to a specific school. Oh, so, they choose, they can choose the school. Yeah. They choose, they choose the school. It, mm. it can't follow their kid. They can't say like, this is for my son or my oh. daughter, but it can, it can go to the school. And then what they do is, and this is where it gets a little tricky because they have to prepay that, that donation, they call it right. within 30 days. Right. So if I say, Hey, I want $5,000 to go to Anvil, uh -huh. I have to prepay that. And then I get that full refund back on my taxes. Uh -huh. So it's really, I mean, you have to have oh, the capital. Right. Yeah. you know, the, the liquidity to be able to pay that before you get it back on your taxes, right. but mm -hmm. it then comes to the school. So um, now I can't be like, well, I gave 5,000. So my, my son gets 5,000. It goes into a scholarship fund and the school creates all of the, the framework for how families access right. that based right. upon need. Um, right. But it, I mean, you know, the majority of our families this year received, you know, anywhere from eighteen hundred to to twenty five hundred dollars scholarship, right, from right. the state of Georgia. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's it's <clears throat> fascinating and very hopeful in terms of like you know it it not needing to be this that that difficult of a thing of state and local communities working together. I mean, um, and, 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 you know, and, and for these hundred families, right. Um, in, in, in <clears throat> just North of Georgia, it's working out. Um, and, and you wouldn't expect that the, all of those intricacies uh, need to fall into place for something to be successful, but very much so, right? Uh, let alone, you know, what you were kicking off earlier with in terms of like, I think you mentioned like the four premises upon which you guys are really trying to act. Um, I interrupted, but it was, it was, you know, the dudes being able to get dirty, right? Um, right. you know, t t take us a little bit into like, you know, like the Anvil Academy. Well, what, like I've seen some beautiful footage, um, of the work that you guys do. And really on, on like a daily basis, it's just impressive. Um, but, but you also like measure that up, but like against the, the normal, 12 13 year old i mean my owen right now is turning 12 and every you know i i just stopped <laughs> following your instagram like because right now it's just depressing um that my son doesn't have access to <laughs> anvil academy and so out of mm. out of like um envy 
I stopped following your your Instagram and and I'll start looking again in like six or seven years. But <laughs> with the work that you guys do is 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 absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, talk about one of those days so that we can really frame into, you know, give color, give picture um, to what's happening for these these kids uh, that you guys are working with and their families down in Georgia. Well, the thing, the thing about the Anvil experience is, is there's, there's, um, there's nothing in the big scope of things. There's nothing unique or uh, kind of revolutionary about it. What, what we've tried to do is replicate what uh, fathers and sons and, and local communities, generational communities have done for how many thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So this was, this was the age you know, 11, 12, 13, that, that boys would start to go with uncles or fathers or grandfathers or just kind of these patriarchs within a community, they would start to go with them into the, the places of work, right? Whether it be the fields or it be the workshop or it be the marketplace. And they would start to apprentice with their dads in the family business. Uh-huh. And so what we've tried to do is essentially create a three-year apprenticeship in, into these things that would have been the core experiences of any boy growing up over the last 10,000 years. And so there, what we've done is we tried to frame it within uh, teaching a history curriculum. And so what we do is over the course of three years, uh, we walk through the arc of human history, obviously in like a hundred thousand foot perspective, right. But beginning (laughs) from, from creation narratives um, all the way up through you know, 20th century North American history from, you know, from our perspective here, but three years, you kind of look at, at this, this secular uh, history arc. And then what we do is, is we take kind of a biblical perspective and, and look like a, a biblical and redemptive history that line up side by side. And as we teach through the history and the people groups and the cultures and the geography that uh, comes about from human history, we try to teach well, what were the things that were definitive within that culture? What were the, the technologies? What were the agricultural practices? What were the innovations that came out of those people groups out of that period of time? Um, and we try to recreate them. And so, you know, we're using ancient technologies of flint and steel and uh, anvils and hammers and forges and uh, earthen forges and then, you know, coal forges and then propane forges. And it's not all blacksmithing, but the motif of, of formation on the blacksmith is really what drives us. And without, you know, rambling, that's really the, the whole point of what we do is, is that we see um, the idea that if we're going to do this work of forging men or bringing boys through the wilderness of middle school into the beginning of manhood, what, what's the thing you're shaping what's what's that the anvil that you're shaping against you know what's the the steadfast un unmoving call it immutable thing and so we would say that that god god is is this uh, this anvil that we do the shaping against and and we talk a lot about trying to pursue the work of jesus in the way of jesus Right, that, that, there, that there is this calling into um, 
kind of this cruciform way of life that that Christ lives out. Um, but there has to be some sort of standard you're forming against. And so that's our standard. You know, we, we use uh, kind of the biblical narrative and ultimately the personhood of Christ as as that shaping force. Um, but if you just put a piece of metal on an anvil and you start banging away at it, all you're going to do is scuff up the metal and, and mess up your hand and, and you're going to hurt yourself. I mean, you need this presence of fire. You need the heat to make the metal malleable. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's where, you know, the history piece and the hands-on trades piece and the tactile hands, dirty work kind of intersects with the spiritual formation piece. I would say, in the biblical narrative, you know, this, this motif of fire is seen all throughout scripture where the presence of, of the spirit falls and whether it's the burning bush or whether it's flames of fire over apostles heads or whether it's pillars of fire guiding there, there is this motif of fire that we say is, is absolutely critical to making us malleable to be shaped. And so um, every day around campus, there's there's a huge bonfire. Every one of our environments has a flame that's always burning. There's always fire as this reminder of that's wow. what makes us malleable. And so you, ha- you have your anvil, you have your metal made malleable by the fire. And then ultimately you need a community who's willing to pick up a hammer and do the shaping. And so that's, wow. you know, that's uh, this group of, of seven of us who, who do the teaching, but it's not just, I mean, it's not just us. It's what we said. It's, it's dads and moms and, aunts yeah. and pastors and coaches. And so it's this community, we call it the fellowship of the hammer, the ones who are picking up the hammers. And sometimes it's most of the time, you know, it's, it's little ball peen hammers where you're just, you're working on a tiny little piece of that formation work. I mean, sometimes you have to break out the big sledge and you have to go to town a little bit, but <laughs> you have to but, like hit, the, hit the children. <laughs> metaphorically <laughs> okay oh man um, um no but i mean it there the you know oftentimes i when i when i hear a, when i hear a successful classroom this this is really honestly what i was thinking as you were saying that like i've heard good classes described but if I, everything that you've shared and everything that I, I have yet to learn, the fact that you said that there is always a fire burning and always sent someone tending to the fire, that is like as you zoom out of, um, you know, middle school experiences, you have these certain kind of memories of a good moment. But it's seldom something that is so that is so cyclical, right? That is repeated, that is permanent, that is ritualistic, that is returned to and enhanced upon. And 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 you know, like for as much as you guys might have like on target, you know, objectives for the day, we know that within education so much of it slips through the cracks and and what stays is hard to pinpoint but but at the same time it becomes it's like it's like when i when i think back on my upbringing you know in, in the church and 
a lot of the times, like even right now, like one of the things I miss the most because like, I don't go to church with my kids is like, like, how are they going to learn how to sing? And I'm so overly obsessed with, uh, you know, the chorus teacher that I insist is choir uh, at, at their, their local schools, because I'm like, <laughs> what, what are they doing? What are they doing? What did you sing? You know, because, and, and how often do you sing every morning? You know, because what I'm ultimately celebrating is that idea of so many humans on a regular basis singing multiple voices and rhythms. Are you kidding me? How could I ever fill those shoes? You know, um, anyway, so, but my point is like, tr- the church objectives may not have been for me to sing on key or learn polyrhythms or how to understand harmony, but that's what was happening inside the church when that so-and-so started singing harmony to like, it is well with my soul. My ears were pinned on that, you know? And, um, and it was just on a repetitive cyclical sort of nature, you know, and, and, and yes, like, like there, there were all these other intentions and (laughs) objectives for the day and meetings around whatever took place, but, but ritual, what you're describing, the, the, the honoring of fire, like, seems like that will be something that, 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 of, of many things that these boys will hold on to. I mean, how beautiful. <laughs> well, not, not only that, but that it's not just a, I don't know, a poster that goes on your wall, right? Or some big banner mm-hmm. that says, character, you know, integrity, <laughs> uh, truth, right? Like, like it, that it's like, no, there's actually a real fire going on. <laughs> like in, in, right you don't need the poster because you actually have the real thing Mm. and i think that you know as a as a culture when we when we sort of dumb down our ethics to this like these four bullet points that go on a poster it's like there's a lot that really if not most that doesn't really translate to the actual daily life of what's actually happening in the hallways, in the classrooms, in the lunchroom, you know, outside in the commons area. So with hands-on activities, there's actually a place, there's actually this practical, tangible moment where you're like, this is actually what integrity looks like. It's like, do you actually wield the hammer? Do you, do you, uh, do you put the metal in the fire long enough? for it to be malleable like (laughs) and like how do you talk like in how you talk about there's like all of that's super super relevant and the consequences are immediate so you can see this like oh when i do this then this happens right and it doesn't have to be you know these high stakes life moments of like Oh, uh, you know, you better not get that girl pregnant, you know, later on in life, you know, because then this could happen and then this could happen. This is no, it's like, it's really actually just like, did you put the metal in the fire? Did you heat it up enough? Like, because then you have this immediate reaction. It's like we're we're missing that 
at ages much earlier than middle school. It's like we're, we're missing it in like as soon as you go to worksheets in a in a kindergarten class, right? You're just like, all right, right, right. I mean, like like that's out the door. Like oh shit. And my my question is like, it seems like there's a lot of you know, for for lack of a better word, there's a therapeutic aspect to what you're offering kids at this level. Like all of a sudden they've probably gone through some nonsensical education up to this point. And if they didn't, they're freaking lucky. Right. Mm. And so they jump in to this immersive experience with you guys. And, um, it seems like it would blow so much therapy out of the water because it's like, that's not what you're selling. And yet that's actually what happens. Like to probably demonstrably within days or weeks of, of, of kids being there. I, I, I mean, does that resonate? I mean, is, is that kind of what you guys experience or? A little bit. I mean, the, the, the first six weeks of a school year, when the first boys come in, I mean, they're, they're kind of wide eyed and they don't really know what to make of it, you know, because there's a certain, on two sides, there's, there's, there's this kind of rowdiness in some ways that, that there's a, there's, there's a wildness that they've never experienced at school before. And, and all of the mental models that have been constructed on what learning and what school is supposed to look like are out the window. So on, yeah. on one side, it's just this paradigm shifting. Like we've been taught that oh this is gosh. what learning is. It happens in this space. It happens in this way through this medium. And we're saying like, no, learning is actually like the, the, the language of life. This, everything that you're going to be doing here is, is the cadence of living in community and learning in community but it's not going to look like your traditional way of, of school. And so one side, there's a wildness that uh, is, I think, liberating and also scary for some kids. I, because I think, you know, what you've come to learn and be comfortable with when that's not there anymore, that structure begins, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit um, disorienting. On the other side, I mean, what we're talking about is, is, you know, forges that are 1200 degrees and power tools that, that can rip through skin and bone and, and working. I mean, cause they, they cook each day. We haven't gotten into that part, but they cook each day. And so you're, there are all these things that have like incredibly high risk levels. And so like the classroom management of how do you do this in a safe way where you send kids home safe each day, like on one side, it's, it's wild and rowdy on another side, like you learn what real danger is and what real behavior is. Right. And so it's not this artificial construct of like, you can't talk when the teacher's talking or uh, you know, these rules that have, you know, somewhat inconsequential, mm-hmm. you know, effects. It's like the rules that are in place, they see there is a real risk involved. And this is why we walk with a knife a certain way. This, this is why we handle uh, why we wear our, you know, ear protection and eye protection. And this is why we act a certain way when we're working here. Right. I, I think it brings, it just, it also helps understand that like rules is it, it, like, I think about the code of ethics that I had to enforce felt artificial. Like we were doing something that created a controlled environment, but it was just for the sake of a controlled environment. 
Right. I think we've tried to we tried to create ultimately there's two rules. It's it's safety first and respect always. And everything trickles down from those two things because the consequences are really clear of uh, if we don't engage in this way as a community. You know, the 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 impact is is like they don't have to imagine what could could happen if that goes wrong. You know, I'm hearing you describe those first six weeks. Okay. Um, and one of the things that we've shared a lot with listeners of the origins podcast, um, in our certified mentorship program, uh, you know, we've been playing with, um, a certain cycle. Um, we call it the learning cycle, uh, within which it, the, the, the cool thing that I've discovered after like 10 years of playing with the language is that it seems to not really, care too much for how old you are which is something very gratifying um in terms of like considering well how are we going to deal with the with these people today right no matter how old they are first day of teaching whatnot so so as you were describing those six weeks i was thinking wow like i really just want to share the language of Emish. Uh, which would be stage one, let's call it, uh, of the learning cycle, right? And let's imagine that we're, you know, with a, the, the, the week before a new semester at Anvil Academy and, and we just want to, you know, like maybe we've got a new teacher on board and they're like, well, what's it going to be like? What should we be preoccupied with? And let's imagine we're having a little bit of a session like that. And so we say, you know, hey, let, let, let's read the language of Emish and let's see what we might be, might be identifying. And I'd be curious, like your response um, to something that, that, that we're familiar with, but you're familiar with the instance and just see what happens. Okay. So I'm going to read you a little bit about what it seems like um, these kids um, that are coming to the Anvil Academy for the first six weeks, maybe more so, will determine when they're ready to cross into the threshold of the next rung, right? So a little exercise, play, practice kind of thing. So Emish um, is a time of the reptilian body. The learner is being introduced to new ideas, skills, and lifestyles. Understanding is infantile, primal, and pure, practical, and physical. Candidate will pass this stage when material becomes memorized viscerally. Interaction moves from observer to participatory awareness. Learner succeeds the level when substantial action towards stewardship is witnessed. This is a time for novelty. Mm. Mentors must nurture the learner's energy, creativity, and aspect of security as to balance protective, defensive, and dominating natures. Stewardship is largely ushered by the mentors. Challenge learners to grow out of immature or unhealthy prejudice and attitudes that are fostered from feelings and fears of rejection. 
Go out, do that, see that. What, 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 to what extent is, is that relevant? Where not? What stands out? What do you hear? What are you thinking? Mm. I, I mean, it, it really resonates on a number of levels. I wish I had it in front of me to kind of look at it, but as I listen to. I'll, I'll, I'll share it here with you, okay? In our little okay. comment thing as you go along, all right? Yeah, that'd be, that would be great. I mean, but as you describe that, in some ways you're describing the insecurity of these guys who are coming in to Anvil in, in these first, call it six, six, eight weeks. And on one side, um, everything is new and there's, there's this adventure, there's this excitement, uh, there's this desire to, to try, to try everything. I mean, and, and, you know, when you take guys into the barn, we operate out of a barn, uh, of course their eyes get big when they see the, the power tools and they see the forge and they see all the big dangerous items. Um, and, you know, obviously we have those there as uh, <laughs> eye candy for lack of better words. I mean, they're, they're part uh-huh. of the environment, right? but um, they, they want to jump into that right away. And it's like, well, can we talk about the tool of the pencil first? Uh, and no one wants to talk about the tool of the pencil or the tool of the ruler. They want to talk about the sawzall and it's like, we'll get to the sawzall, but, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's, there's this idea of, they want to be, they want to jump into that mastery level before really understanding, Hey, there's a little bit of a hierarchy, uh, that needs to be established if we're going to do this safely. And so some of that is just kind of, um, you know, they've created these narratives in their mind of like what this is going to be and this idea of oftentimes it's a much slower growth and trajectory than, than what we desire is a good part of the learning. I think the, uh, a thing though, when, when like as a mentor understanding what's the internal, uh, I don't know. Uh, like, I forget how scary it would be for, let's call it a sixth grader to walk into a community like this, because it rarely is it differentiated by age. We're, we're together a lot of the time in this multi-age group. There are uh-huh. times where we break out and we do some, some specific developmental or maturity based stuff, but there's a well, lot of multiple this in- ages over three, three years. Right. 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 Uh-huh. And so you see some of these sixth graders who come in and call them 11 or 12 year olds who are there in the same space as 13 or 14 year olds who just, you know, from a biological side from intellectual side and relational side are are in a completely different place. And there is a a fear that is evident there. There is a, a feeling of less than, and oftentimes you see one of two things. One, the boys kind of go internal and, and kind of are just quiet and become quiet observers out of what seems like fear. And then other times you have these, some boys who try to uh, I'm going to, I'm going to earn my way into this, this, this brotherhood and uh, kind of try to act older than they are or bigger or tougher or whatever. And, and 
sometimes I think it, you know, we, we forget that that's, that's a natural defense mechanism, <laughs> you know, that, that these boys are living out, but it seems kind of what you're talking about that, that um, it's easy to react to that uh, rather than to recognize mm-hmm. that, no, this is, this is developmentally appropriate. And how yeah. do we steward these, these emotions and fears and experiences and excitement in a way that, we don't expect too much of them, but also like the goal, no one's walking out of here, you know, like Bob Vila or, or Chip Gaines or any of these like master craftsmen. Like the goal isn't mastery. The goal is learning through experience and having a place where they can have the freedom to fail and ask the question, well, what did we learn from that? And not feel like, Hey, that was, you know, that we, we, you know, we have all these different mantras, but we, you know, talk about this idea that that failure isn't fatal and failure isn't final unless you choose for it to be. Um, and trying to get this, this learning cycle, so you, as you call you, it, of, you, re, you repeat that as a group or you repeat that at times or like, is it incantations at times? No, I mean, it's just, it's not like we're chanting this, but, but it is like the boys, you know, we'll hear us say these things over and over uh, mm-hmm. as yeah. kind of the, the, the core, I'm not gonna call them core value because we have a, a certain set of core values, but um, you know, Go-tos, something that, yeah. that at any point, you know, I could start it and any guy could, could finish it because they know right, <laughs> right. what they, what they've heard us say, you know, th- there's just, there's a certain degree that, um, in the history piece, you know, because we're on this three year, like sprint through history every day, we hope there's something from the history side that's, that's new and learned and that it's adding to the complexity of kind of their, their context for seeing the world. And so there, there's always that newness that is, is being uh, kind of added to, but then the other things, that we're just we're repeating and and are becoming memorized viscerally that this happens as as they live out the cadence of anvil Mm -hmm. um but yeah i would i would say that idea of like this time is there's a novelty about it there's like everything is new and novel when when you when you see and and i and i know we're we're like i'm I'm saying hey look at this thing (laughs) that i've looked at for years uh you know but but at the same time, I, I, I know that, that you can identify aspects of it as like, well, okay. Like when, when would you say without knowing, you know, eek, which, which follows, when do you tend to identify? Cause you have this batch of students and, and, and one of the things that we discuss often when we get into the learning cycle is that the beauty is that there's, it, it, it's a, it's a, spiral-like descendants, right? So you're moving through a linear order of things, but it's not everybody at the same time. See, mm-hmm. see, with, with traditional schooling, you everybody starts off, let's say sixth grade, right? And by the end, everybody's got to be at the same place again. And we know that that's not even real, but we live within this fictitious thing that let's just pretend. And then it creates 
agony for those who don't fall into that and, 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 and false sense of success for those who do. But just in this little instance, when would you identify that, that someone is like, hmm, I don't think they're any niche anymore. You know, like when, you, when you're looking at this language and you're like, or, or, or within the language that you guys navigate, you know, everybody's starting in the Anvil new moment. At what point do you begin to identify, whoa, okay, this, and then what do you do with the kids that have moved on? Well, I would structure the language a little slightly different. I would just say, at what point is someone not a newbie anymore? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. at, at yeah. what point, if someone new showed up, you'd be like, oh, God, yeah. Like, <laughs> like they don't know all the stuff that these kids who were new now know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, part of this is the reason why boys are in a multi aged group and, and they are at this place of, you know, some of, some of our eighth grade students who've been here for three years, I'm not going to say they're still in, I'm going to imish if that's the right word. I mean, but there, there are, there are some sixth grade students that, you know, over a semester will, will progress more in personal maturity and responsibility and curiosity and, and engagement than some of our our eighth graders have. And so it's some of the reason that we keep a multi-grade environment because we just recognize, especially in these years where there's so much hormonally and biologically happening, like the variables for moving through the, these years are certainly nonlinear. Like you said, we, we have a progression mm-hmm. over those three years where essentially we would say all of year one for us would be that year of, uh, energy, creativity, um, and just wide-eyed wonder about what is this thing. Like the whole first year is all about orientation into the culture, into the learning environment. We'd say the second year is all about doing like the uncomfortable formation of, of being challenged into some of these core manhood attributes. And then year three, it's this idea of, of being placed in a mentor role where they are the ones who are actively engaging the younger guys who are serving as exemplars, who are the storytellers of the Anvil way, you know, and, wow. and um, now not all boys follow that, you know, right. uh, in the same way, but, but that's the way that the social structure is set up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some boys naturally emerge as, as leaders and true mentors and others are really trying to grapple with, I'm trying this. Uh, it, it feels like I'm acting, but I'm, I'm trying, you know? Wow. Sure. Wow. Super cool. If you could speak a little bit to, I'm interested in number one, what was your experience or do you feel like there was a tangible difference in students that are now post COVID compared to students that you, that were coming pre COVID. So not just like we had a COVID mess things up. It's like, well, yeah, of course it did. Yeah. But, but I've heard from a lot of different educators. It's just like, no, actually kids are, are different now. And and then they Mm. expand on that. They qualify in in several different ways. Um, And I don't want to, put that language on, on this question here, but I'd also like to know 
um, how you feel or how you deal with or how you talk about or or compartmentalize um, devices in students' lives. Um, mm. And and that may not be something that you really even have to deal with because they're it's just so cleanly like guess what we're, we're everybody go. leave your devices at yeah, the door it's, we're it's like, at the Anvil Academy yeah we're, we're like we there's know? there's sawzells around what do you need your uh-huh. what do you need your iPhone for it is it's just like, <laughs> this is great well Google but, it maybe that pops up right. right so speak a little bit to those those two mm-hmm. subjects in regards to the to the covid piece i feel like we've we've been less impacted than a lot of learning communities because the profile of our student um for the majority is in some sort of non-traditional educational space anyway and has and has been you know we don't have a whole lot of students coming out of a Mm five-day school into anvil a few but the majority were already in some sort of either home-based or mm. non-traditional schedule. And so mm-hmm. to go through a period of you know, quarantine where they're just in the context of their family or uh, didn't really feel all of that disorienting mm-hmm. you know, or, or um, like, a, like significant interruption to what they had been dealing with, um, you know, Georgia, so this is where some of the political stuff gets, Georgia was, um, you know, took a very different approach toward a lot of the, the mandates. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We live, uh, I talked about the kind of the suburban sprawl. We live in this intersection of, of urban and rural, you know, Alpharetta coming uh, mm-hmm. to the north you know, and I'm not making any sort of value judgment, but uh, north and west of us, you know, you, you would would be kind of Trump country and you'd see the Trump signs everywhere. And, and you know, you look one direction down our road and it, it's you have your Trump flags and signs and you look out my road to the other direction and you have, you know, your opposite candidate. Right. So, right. you know, call, call, wow. it, call it Biden, call it whomever. And so. Uh, we live in this really interesting political intersection, which I don't think you can talk about COVID impact on schools without recognizing sure. that that yeah, in yeah. some ways, you know, there's it, there's the political dynamic of it too. All that to say, um, it's a really interesting melding uh, in in our community of people who have really strong opinions towards uh, yeah. b- both sides of this political pendulum, um, but. Anvil, because of the nature of what we do, um, outside, you know, March, was it March 19th, we had to shut down here of 2020, March 19th. Um, and we were out then through, you know, the rest of that spring. But when we came back that fall, we had to make some adaptations to our program. But the majority of the program were outside or were in a barn that has big open doors and it's an open outdoor barn space you know we're outside in outdoor classrooms and fire pit classrooms and and so really the only change to program for us is that when boys were creating their meals for others I mean they cook each day for themselves but when they were working in a collaborative cooking environment 
you know, that's the one place they had to wear masks and gloves because they were, they were cooking for other people, but that was really sure. the only impact on our program. And so mm. we, we wow. felt really, really fortunate to, wow. to, to feel probably as little impact as, as we could have felt. Um, wow. Yeah. Did you, because of all of that, did that create like this plus marketing thing to where everybody was like, ah, oh, they're not so impacted, you know, like, was there like this unpredicted positive benefit or not that much? I don't think for, for us specifically, but for a lot of the hybrid schools or, or non-traditional schools, you know, that fall when all the public schools at that point were, everyone came back, you know, with, with really intense COVID measures and full masking and everything. Um, a lot of the hybrid schools had a greater autonomy in terms of how they, they created their environments. And so I, I think the, the whole non-traditional school environment, uh, there was a kind of a, a boom uh, because people, one, had had been in a non-traditional home-based virtual learning. And for the first time, they were like, oh, maybe we could do this. Right. Or some people, you know, were who were very kind of anti-mask uh, were like, well, I'm not going there, so I'm going to go here. And it wasn't right. because they loved, loved the school. And, right. you know, and, and we had, you know, we weren't immune from that. There were some people in our culture who who you know, even, even our really minor, uh, what we thought were wise and prudent kind of responses. Some people, it was untenable for them and they left the community because of it. And we had others who came. it just, sure. you know, everything is a microcosm of the culture at large, but, <clears throat> um, I, I would say, yeah, it, we were minimally impacted. I think the device thing is, is a bigger conversation and, uh, you know, to, to answer your question, like if they bring a device on campus, uh, we better not see it <laughs> because uh, it's it's a it's a device free and kind of a technology free zone. If you think of technology as modern, like you know, computing like devices, right? right? Yeah, I mean, like obviously we use electric tools, but and electric things for our cooking and but personal devices, there really isn't any. Like no one has been able to convince me of why a student would need a personal device in our program. Um, and so they keep them turned off in their backpacks. Uh, and it, it's been such a gift to not have to deal with, like to, to have their full attention. Now, of, of course, I'm sure as soon as they get into the, their car, you know, they whip them out and they do whatever they do. But it's been a really, and, and I think the boys appreciate it too. There's such like, just from a cultural perspective, there's no mm -hmm. pressure to be on a device and checking this. And Yeah, that's an interesting thing of how much the desire to, you know, like Owen's only desire to have, this is the first year, so he started middle school, sixth grade. The only time I've ever heard him say, dad, come on, man. I'm like, why are you so interested in this thing? He's like, well, everybody at lunch has a device now. What do you want me to do? Hmm. Right. It, it has nothing to do with like what, what the device is or whatnot. So like Owen took it one day and um, then the next day he's like, nah, 
I'm not doing this every day. You know, <laughs> I haven't even gotten, this is like recent, but, but, you know, like it's, it's really interesting what you're pointing out that like by just making it device free, um, which I think is like almost like this nicer word. Cause like so much of what you guys do is technology, right? Um, like it's ancestral technology. Um, yeah. So you guys have this space in which that is like, they feel a relief because it's the same rule for everyone. That's nice. And I, I think um, one of the things that I found about non-traditional homeschool communities is there's also, there doesn't seem to be the same degree of, of cultural and social pressure for every kid to have a device. And so I would mm. say probably about half of our That's boys have them, about yeah. half of them don't because, you know, and it's not that, that, the community is kind of Luddite technology, anti-technology, but there's also right, a, right. like a case for use. Like what, like my, my son, we've told him, you know, when he starts to drive, when he goes to high school, cause he'll, he'll go to a, a regular high school. I was like, I think you'll need a phone then. But other than that, like, why, why would you convince me? Why would you need a phone? Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's, there's less peer pressure in the environment. Um, but I mean, I also think the way that devices are designed, like I don't feel any sort of burden to teach how to use technology for education. I feel like they'll be fine. Like they're yeah. not going to be at a disadvantage because they haven't been taught how to use a, you know, yeah. Google drive at like, they're, they're going to be fine. Like they, they'll pick it up to have yeah. these years where they can experience the gift of, you know, just for a few hours. And really we're talking two days a week, right? So we're talking 16 hours, 20 hours a week. Where... So you, you, you've had some kids that um, have been in the program and graduated from the program and, and now I've been out of the program for about four years. Right. Um, you know, what, you know, there's, there's certainly those who came from the first progression, but like talk, talk about what you're able to see and how you feel with like, you know, what you were hoping for. Um, and what you're able to see of kids that came out, you know, like ultimately we, we go into these things without, with, with a lot of gut, right? Like, we're just like this uh, with a lot of this other things, not working. Why don't we try this? And, you know, with seven years under your belt, you got something to talk about. Yeah. So we had our first, so our first eighth grade group who, who joined the first year graduated high school last high school last year. So our, you know, wow. our college freshmen. Um, and so that was kind of fun to see the ones that we've kept up with kind of what they're doing. But you were done with um, them in eighth grade, right? Yeah. So they were only with us for one year. Right. Um, uh-huh. And then, and then, I'll say this is a, this has been a, a really weak point in the program is tracking with families after they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because there's not a central community that's sending, you know, mm-hmm. boys come from a radius of, you know, anywhere an hour driving an hour, you know, it, mm-hmm. there, we haven't established a really good alumni network or a way of tracking boys. And so the ones who stay c- close and connected are usually the ones who you're close and connected with, you know, the one, the ones who desire that relationship, yeah. you know, I, so to be honest, I, I mean, I know of some of our graduates who 
you know, are, are got full scholarship to college and, and are doing awesome. And I know a couple who have dropped out and are working, you know, at the liquor store and, and like it, it, um, there's no magic bullet, you know, but I think, uh, but I, I don't know. I think you identified this as an area that we've identified, um, we don't really have a lot of long-term data because we don't have a, a consistent mm-hmm. alumni network that we've stayed in touch with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's skewed because the guys, the guys who stayed in touch are doing awesome, you know, but they're not the ones who. Right. You know, right. So no, it's not, it's not I, I actually, comprehensive. And, and, yeah. and I like that. I mean, that's the, the nature of the beast right now is, you know, and it's, it ultimately isn't about the question that I'm asking. It's what you guys did and who you were there for the present moment. It's uh, an interesting point of conversation. Uh, going back to this Reeves guy that I keep talking about, um, I, I'm, I'd be curious. His proposal is that, because his big thing is that, like, you know, education after some time, you know, we've, we've come a long way and, and, and women have access to all of this and they're doing very well in our educational systems. And, and one of the, the main premises of his book um, is that, or his solutions to the problem is of why men are not successful in education is that men should start later. And so he proposes if they just started a year later, things would be better. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, uh, Ron and I have dabbled a little bit in this thing, um, you know, but it seems an, a, a very oversimplified sort of approach to what I think is a valid problem, right? Yeah, you know, Today, I even brought this up with Owen, you know, 12 guys said, hey, Owen, uh, or over the weekend. So who's more mature, the girls or the boys in your class? And I was like, ah, oh, dad, the girls. I was like, wow. Like, that, like you know, uh, right up. Uh, and, and he said, and I said, why? How do you, how do you know that? And he said, well, like, like if we're trying to line up, the guys don't line up. We just like, we like grab each other's butts and stuff. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a re- really good way of identifying who's more mature. <laughs> and Owen's just a really honest guy. It's such an interesting conversation, but um, without that whole entire context, uh, I would say that like, you know, when, when, when I read that in, in the population that you're working with, that, you know, boys coming to the age of 12, that we know ancestrally needed to be around a, a other men, right. Um, needed to understand that, that the livelihood of the village was on their shoulders. Really? Mm. Like, mm. You, there's no food. This thing is not going to work. There was a certain leverage that uh, standardized testing didn't create. Um, and, and you guys are tapping into all of that. Like, well, um, there, there was a certain understanding also that other men or other people outside of that nuclear family could exact a different response than the parents could. Mm. 
So yeah. the parents mm. actually cannot get uh, certain types of learning and responses out of their kids just because of the nature of how close and intimate their relationship is. You actually need someone that has a little distance to be able to say some things that the parents can't say or won't say or or have trained themselves not to say or would never think to say, right? Like you need that difference. And the community benefits from having all of those different perspectives. And it's it goes back to the 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 research on on asset-based uh learning. It, it just says the more the more adults that you have in your life that you can trust, the more likely you are to have success in your life. That's just that's <laughs> just it. <laughs> Right. And if you don't have that, if that number is really small because you don't, you know, because you, your parents are divorced and you don't have like this, you don't have, yeah. or maybe you, maybe you've moved communities and you're, or you right. know, there's a thousand different reasons that, it, that it may not be true, but it's like, who do these kids have in their lives that they can trust that are adults mm. that are real, that are, that are real adults. And it's not always it. In the public school system, ideally, you'd think, well, every teacher that they have in middle school, they have maybe six or seven different teachers. Every teacher that they have there, they can trust, right? And it's like, well, no, mm-hmm. that's not. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, you love to right. believe that that was true, but it, un- unfortunately, it that's not always true. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it's much more likely in the intimacy of, of a setting like Anvil Academy and, um, and something that you're more likely to be able to approach. Um, I, I think that's what, I mean, ultimately it's what parents are desiring. I mean, just exactly what you said uh, from, from our perspective, it's, you know, who, who are men at, at similar and different stages who they parents trust as, like-minded, mature, trustworthy, who will speak these same things to them in ways that they'll hear. You know, there, there was um, a book recently, there was such a great vignette of this. Um, it was uh, A Place on Earth by Wendell Berry. And he was talking about this father. And uh, I mean, it's this farming community, this uh, the, from the Port Williams series. Are you all familiar, familiar at all? With, with Wendell Berry and his writing Port William series. Essentially, he, it's, this, it's this town in Kentucky and it kind of follows generations through this farming community and its, its growth towards industrialism and all this stuff. But uh-huh. it's his father and uh, you know his son is growing up on the farm. He's trying to teach him how to be a farmer and try to teach him the ways of, of the cycles of the earth and the ways of the farm. But I mean, the community is essentially all these farms that are interconnected where there, his, his uncle and some of these other men uh, are living on adjacent farms. And essentially at some point he realizes, you know, my son can't work for me anymore. Like, and it's this age 12, 13, that I have to send him to his uncle and to these other men in the community. And, and they will be able to teach him the farm in ways that I can't so that one day he can come back and lead this farm. But, right. but he needs those other voices uh, if he's, if he's ever going to actually, and obviously Barry writes it in ways that are so much more articulate and compelling, but, it, but, but I mean, I was just there like taking pictures and pictures of, of, of this, this little vignette. And it was like, man, this is exactly what I think we're trying to do. And I'm just talking as a dad. I mean, this is what I desire for my sons. Like the selfish part of Anvil is that I, I created it as a place that I would want to send my sons to. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's like, I have three boys and, and I have a, a daughter, but I, 
what do I want for my boys? And so let's create it. And what kind of boys do I want engaging with my daughter one day? Let's try to create a space where we're right. forming those, those guys. So, so your, awesome. your, your, your boys are all in the anvil. Uh, my oldest son, Judah is eighth grade. Um, Walter is seventh grade. And then little Andrew has a couple years to get here. So he's second grade. So he's my youngest. So, so you have two in anvil um, right now. Mm-hmm. And, and we've done exactly what you're talking about with our boys. Um, I mean, both of them could be high school or late or, you know, late eighth grade right now, but we, we held them back specifically because they just weren't ready to navigate the school system and they're both mm-hmm. doing awesome, but you know, they'll be the oldest in their grade all the way through because they needed those couple extra years oh. development developmentally. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and wow. Like certainly a lot more to tackle. Um, it's just wetting the palate. I'll tell you that much. Um, really good to have you with us. I appreciate you joining us. I know it's late down there. Um, I, uh, I want to leave you with a little poem. Um, Rainer Maria Rilke says this in a certain way uh, that made me think of certain things that need to happen. It says, sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east and his children say blessing on him as if he were dead and another man who remains inside his own home stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church, which he forgot. And I bless you, my brother, with that. (laughs) I bless you for all of the standing up from the table, from my heart. I bless you, the work of Anvil, the struggles, father, son, husband. Beautiful hearing um, tidbits of what is a tremendous uh, conversation of what's happening um, there for the community, um, but also for your family. Um, but all, all related to those dinner tables, um, Mm. and, and a good few and, uh, which you've said, Hey, I got to find that church in the East. Um, Mm. and, uh, it certainly seems that you're doing a good job with all of that. So, uh, great to have you on the show. Yeah. Your, your work is inspirational, Andy. I enjoy watching it, um, and, uh, keeping tabs on on every little movement that you're able to, to post when you do on uh, mm. Facebook and 
some other places that we watch you. So um, thank you for your time for carving out this little moment to uh, to share some of that with us. Tell us a yeah. little bit of where people can follow what you guys are doing um, and ask other questions, um, be it parents, be it teachers, be it, um, you know, young learners, uh, just wanting to see that things are being done differently. Where would they go? Our website would probably be the, the first place. Uh, so it's just theanvilacademy.org. Um, but that, I mean, that gives kind of the, the formal outline of everything to see it in action. Our Facebook page, which is just facebook.com uh, backslash the Anvil Academy slash GA um, is where you can go. And that really, I mean, every, every cohort we try to post, you know, so after Tuesday, Wednesday, we'll post uh, a gallery of what happens and, and there you can kind of really see it in action. But uh, all my contact is there and I'd love to engage with you and talk through a little of what we do and, and how we might be able to, to help support anyone who's interested in, in doing similar work. So thank you both for uh, the forum to share a little bit and to share the story. It's just, it's exciting to recall it and retell it. And, and so often you get into the day in day out and you, you forget the work that's happened. And so it's inspiring just to, to converse with other men, other guys who are following similar passions and, and certainly your words are, affirming and encouraging so thank you brothers very much thank you to be continued to be continued and the doors are we say this the barn doors are always open and so anytime you're passing through atlanta georgia come hang out in the barn and we'll have long conversations around the fire and eat good food and drink good drinks and have great conversations so barn doors are always open it's always good to know where there's a well-tended fire um so <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. This is the Origins Podcast, and I am Carl, your host. I am Ron Green. Thank you, everyone. Good night. <laughs>